Welcome to the second episode of My Favorite Family Heirlooms Podcast. I'm Jeff. And I'm Carolyn. And on this episode, we're going to talk to Eleanor and about a special object that's in her family's history. We're so excited to have Eleanor on the podcast for episode two. She's a music teacher by day and a genealogist by night and is owner and lead genealogist for Carlin Genealogical Services. Mm-hmm. Yes. Hi, Hello. Eleanor. Hi, Carolyn. How are you? Good. Good. We're excited to have you on this episode. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. It's, it's going to be neat to be on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so we ha- you have an object for us. I do. Yes, I fortunately my parents are both historians, so and uh, luckily they just don't have enough room for everything. So then I get to have some of these wonderful treasures. Mm-hmm. Um, so today I thought I'm going to try to cur- throw you guys a curveball. I want to see how tricky I can make this. So what I decided to do is I was going I grabbed my grandpa's shirt that he wore when he was performing on his radio shows in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Uh, The shirt that I have, it is uh, about circa 1948, 50, somewhere in there. Uh, It's a two-tone color. It's a cowboy style um, and it has snaps on it. The two colors are maroon and a light gray. And then it has two pockets on each breast. Well, one on each breast, I should say. Um, just to have, you know, shove notes in there or smokes or something in there. Uh, and then there are snaps on the collar and on the um, on the cuffs itself, too. Cool. Um, and what was your first memory of this object? It was actually pretty recent. It was actually very, very recent. Not like yesterday recent, but... Um, I started, I got the opportunity to do my grandpa's radio show as my master's thesis topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, originally, when I, I have two master's degrees, one in library science and one in music history. If, before I met with my professor, I was going to do a thesis on lounge music because I'm a lounge lizard. <laughs> I love the martini era with the dresses and just the cocktail lounge is my go-to heaven. Um, but then I was talking to my professor and he's like, Hey, and I actually brought in my grandpa's publicity card and on it had a guitar, but I couldn't tell what kind of guitar it was because the head of it had gotten chopped off. I, so I asked my professor, Martin Jack Rosenblum, who was a really, really big music professor at UW Milwaukee. What is, can you tell me the history behind this guitar? Oh my gosh, your grandpa was, was a radio show dude. That's awesome. Oh, you got to research on that like oh I don't know but then um I decided to do it I spent three years researching it and throughout the process my mom said you know what it's time for you to have this and she pulled it out of this box and she has tubs of her family's clothes because a lot of her family had passed away um and she had been saving this and so I've I've had it for a couple years now so it's a a very recent memory of me getting it Mm -hmm. Um, but it was part of a long trail and I feel like I've now earned this shirt. Mm-hmm. All your research. Yes. Very cool. Before you knew all that much about it, mm-hmm. what did you think? I thought it was so cool because mm-hmm. I never got to meet my grandpa. He died five years before me and all I had were stories mm-hmm. and written word. Um, and so it's just like, wow, this is something he wore. This is a symbol. This was actually saved. For some reason, he had saved this shirt. His family saved this shirt. 
And I just thought that was just the neatest thing. And just looking at it, it is very, there's a lot of threadbare in parts. And it's like, what action has it seen? And if, for the radio audience out there who's watching this, um, but it's nice and nicely kept here. But then right where the guitar was resting, it is all threadbare. He had been rubbing against that guitar against his shirt as he was playing. So you could, t- you could tell he had performed in the shirt quite often. So I thought it was really neat. But another thing that you guys can talk about when you're preser- when you're talking about the preservation part is um, somehow it got washed and it shrunk. Mm. So he, my grandpa was a stockier guy, kind of like me, where us Owenses are thick build. Um, and uh, there, it, it shrunk. There, I could not see how in the world he could fit in this. Um, so I thought that was really interesting, too, and it made me wary of ever washing this ever again. So don't wear it out in public because you don't know if a bird's going to poop on it. Um, but, yeah, I thought it was I, – I thought of a lot of things, but the first thing was just, wow, this is super cool. Yeah. So how do you – when you look at this, how does this object make you feel? Bittersweet. Um, and I'm very happy because he was – he is an inspiration to me. Uh, one of the reasons why I went into music was because I never got to know my grandpa, grandfather. I call him grandpa. Um, and with him, um, he followed his dream. My grandpa grew up in a family of farmers, and he was the black sheep. He's like, I'm not going to be farming. You couldn't get me out in the field if you tried. Um, but he um, persevered, and he went and he chased his dream. And his dream was to become a cowboy singer, and he did. Um, so I think it is really awesome. It's a good testimony to him following what he wanted to do. But looking at it also, it's like, I could have known him, but he passed away of a heart attack at age 52. <laughs> um, so it's, it's kind of bittersweet, but I think it's really, really neat. And it's definitely going to be an heirloom that is passed down saying, you know, you could do what you want. And that's kind of an inspiration to me because I'm told, you know, oh, well, you need to have a study job. You need this, that thing. It's like, I want to rely on myself. Like he was relying on himself and I want to build my business. So it's also a testimony to that as well. When your mother gave you this, what were you initially told? Not a whole lot. Um, she just said, here's your grandpa's shirt. Take good care of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Plain and simple. Right. Um, and she, you know, she had me try it on and I tried it on. It's like, you know, the sleeves are up to there. It's like a three quarter, like, ah. I felt like a scarecrow. Um, but, you know, as then we realized, you know, that, oh, yeah, by the way, it shrunk. So um, that's basically what my mom told me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. No, no heartfelt, so, you know, sentiments or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. So. You said that uh, you have the wear on the shirt from the guitar that your grandfather was playing. Did you ever figure out what kind of guitar he was playing? So he actually did have a variety of guitars. Um, the one my professor thought it was was a Sears and Roebuck uh, catalog guitar. Um, He's, they were very poor farmers. He, they lived with families throughout the Depression. At the end of the Depression, they found a farm. They, his parents bought a farm, and then everybody moved on to that farm. Um, and so they didn't have a lot of money. But then as he gained popularity and he started to know the people, um, the guitar dealers, he, he was able to level up. Uh, he even had his own steel guitar, which is kind of a, it's a different kind of guitar, but he started to collect and he actually was given a guitar that Elvis had the same copy of. 
So, um, so he with a, it was a really nice guitar. My mom saved that one out of all the guitars. It's nice pearl inlay. It has a dove on it. I forget. It's a Gibson, a nice Gibson guitar that he had. But the one that he was pictured with was I. We were pretty sure it's a Sears Roebuck, get in the mail kind of guitar. My grandpa was born in on February 6, 1930, and based on calculations, he might have he was likely an accident. They were not planning on it. Um, he so they got married super quick, and then uh, they had my grandpa. My grandpa was a was the junior. We have my grandpa's name was Ronald Owen, um, and his dad was Ronald the first. He was the second. My uncle was the third. Um, but they were a farming family in southwestern Minnesota, south, not southwestern, southeastern Minnesota, um, in a town called Red Wing. And in Red Wing, Minnesota, we're known for the, the boots and for the pottery. Um, his family didn't get into that. But he, my, the Owenses, we call them Owenses for pluralizing, um, were, have been in this country since, this, for, since the American Revolution. Um, he did the most recent ancestor who came over from Europe was his grandfather or great grandfather, grandfather, um, Thomas Carlin, who fought in the Civil War from Ireland. So I named my business after his mother's side, the Carlins, uh, because the Carlin women are nice and strong and tough and they're going to do it by gum. So um, he he was the only child because we just think that there was some medical reason why my great grandmother couldn't have any more kids. But because of that, he was also very spoiled. Um, my great-grandmother catered to him, wanted let him do whatever he wanted. Um, but my great-grandfather's like, you know, you got to be getting out in the field. Well, a lot of tug and pull there, but he ended up dropping out of school like a lot of farm kids did. He was trying to help out on the farm, didn't do a whole lot. But then he, when he was about ugh, 18 years old, he had a back incident. Um, he had a bone spur or bone growth growing out of his tailbone. So he was laid up for about a year. And at this point, it is right after the great, uh, the world war two. And, uh, at this point in American history, because of all the conflicts, the folk music, the country, Western folk music was becoming popular. And in Red Wing, Minnesota, it's about an hour drive from the cities. Um, they were still focused on making their own music. Um, they didn't do big band. They didn't have jazz. They did Western folk. They, they had accordions. They were doing the German polka stuff. Um, with my grandpa, he was laid up and he was listening to all these old guys. You know, you got the Hank Williams and Roy Rogers and Gene Autry. And he was so inspired by that that he wanted to go ahead and he wanted to create, he wanted, he wanted to create his own cowboy. And, uh, so there was a radio show that he did channel or not stream, but he was able to get, uh, from Minneapolis called Stairway to Stardom. And that was on the CBS channel WCCO. And he and his aunt went ahead and they were, they were practicing and practicing and they decided, you know, we're going to audition for it. So they did that. And they got second place in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And that was a pretty big deal. Meanwhile, there was a 
radio station opening up in Red Wing called uh, KAAA. And they were looking for talent and they were just starting out. So it was about 47, 48. And he went on and he's like, you know, I want to have my own show. All right, cool. You got second place in this big, you know, big uh, American Idol kind of thing. Cool. Do it. So he started it. But he another inspiration for me was that he led the way to so many other people to get on that show. So he reached out to friends. Hey, you want to be a country singer? Come on. Well, I, you know, I'll let you in, you know, if we can figure out something. So he got another person on there. Plus, he befriended somebody who was on the Grand Ole Opry. Uh, she was also on um, uh, the National Barn Dance shows that were coming out of Chicago. She got her start there, and then she eventually got to Grand Ole Opry. So it was him. Genevieve Hovde, who was the girl who was going around all these different places, and uh, she really got her start on a barn dance in St. Paul. Uh, so she went. She was a big barn dance star, and she actually helped me with my thesis um, because she was. She's the only one left. So um, just working with her and hearing all those stories from all the big Western greats was really neat. Um, but it was her and it was uh, his friend Leo Dressen uh, who he got on there. And he just he paved the way for so many people to become a local celebrity in Red Wing, Minnesota. So it was the shoe, it was the pottery, and it was Ronnie Owens. And it was so cool. Um, but he, it was because he got laid up. He was laid up in bed and he decided, you know what? I want to do my own thing. And he did. And his mother let him. They, he was able to borrow the family car and drive up to Minneapolis, Minnesota. So he had his own show from about 1948 to about 1954. He met my grandma. They decided that, you know, you need a little steadier income uh, instead of just doing a radio show and doing gigs. He was doing gigs around Red Wing, around western Wisconsin and southern Minnesota. Um, and so he did that. And uh, he, he dropped out. And another reason why he dropped out was because at that point, rock and roll was becoming a big deal. People weren't caring about the good old romantic cowboy days anymore. They wanted to focus on rock and roll and then eventually became astronaut land. Um, so he, the, his romanticized ideas of the cowboy were going away and the radio station had to follow suit. So he dropped out. He ended up working at a creamery. And then he worked at a fancy hotel. But then um, he remarried. He got a second wife. Then they had a, their own radio show there um, interviewing the country singers. And I say country because country changed. It's not Western folk. My grandpa's saying Western folk. We're talking about like Mabel Carter and people like that. You know, you got the acoustic guitar and you're singing. Country music incorporated electronic instruments. They're also incorporating drums. So that is the difference that I argue with when I'm debating about what makes a good Western folk song. But um, he was interviewing people, nationally known people, um, on the second show. And it was a very short-lived show. Um, but So that was in the 70s. And then he did pass away in 1982, five years before I was born. Um and uh, that's and so he, he tried to get back to his dream, even though he realized that real life had to happen and he had to support a family. Um, but he, he kept following his dream to the end. So there you go. And that's what inspires you. It inspires me greatly. Yeah. 
I was given that gene, that performance gene. I have no problem being on the stage. I have no problem. Sure, I'm nervous right up to that point, but once I'm on, I'm on. So I think he did pass me that along with the hair color. That's probably the only couple things I got from him, genetically. Were there things that you found that you were told that weren't true about him? Wow, that's a good question. Um, of course, now the real the real thing has been sunk to my sunk into my head for so long. Um, one of the things we're trying to debunk is whether or not he was given an opportunity to go to Nashville. That was going to be the next step. He knew all the people. He knew how to get out there. My grandma says he was given an opportunity and he had to choose between family and Nashville. And he chose family. His friend Genevieve says, no way. There's no way he was given the opportunity. We have not been able to debunk that. I think listening to the recordings that we do have, that I was able to get transferred from 78s to digital. It's like, I think he had it. I don't know if there really was that opportunity presented to him. Because the Grand Ole Opry is still thriving. So he could have had his own thing. I think, however, his style was so Western folk, it was never going to be country. But um, he did write songs. He has his own. A lot of the recordings I have are his covers of songs from Gene Autry and Hank Williams um, and Will Rogers. But he, I have a whole book here of songs he actually wrote by hand that were very autobiographical. Um, so for me, it embellished and provided more evidence of what I kind of knew, or I, I just kind of drew my own conclusions. Um, but here's sound evidence of this is what he saw. This is how he felt. And this is what he wanted to go and do. So I don't think I have found anything that really uh, broke any myths, but it helped provide evidence for the things that my family did say, mm-hmm. except for the Nashville thing. We're still trying to f- figure that out. Right, right. Yeah. Right. Well, I think that's pretty unusual. I think a lot of people, they what they learn from their family isn't necessarily true. Right. Yeah. I know that firsthand. Yeah. Well, At to be... In Jeff's case, that's true. <laughs> well, to be perfectly honest, when I was growing up, all I heard was about how my grandfather became an alcoholic. And he was a no good, good for nothing, whatever, you know, swear word here, there, and other things. And so one of the reasons that drove my thesis was, you know, you're not born an alcoholic, or at least not that I know of. What got you to that point? Mm-hmm. And so that helped me understand. And a big part of it, well, I hear my mother in my head, um, but a big part of it is that he did drop his dream. And I think he felt really bad about that. He had my mother. Then he had my uncle. My uncle was born you know, a few months after my great-grandfather died. So then my grandpa became man of the house, and he wasn't ready. Mm-hmm. He was not ready. So I think that was another big part of it. But it's just hearing that all my life, you know, it's like, we don't talk about him. He was a horrible person. Mm. He was just horrible. He, he, was, a, he was a mean drunk. Um and it caused a lot of psychological stuff for my family. Mm-hmm. And um, 
but I wanted to know who he was beforehand. And I think through this research that I did for my thesis, it was a very healing process for my mom. Um, because then she's listening back to these old tapes that were recorded before she was born. Like, okay, I get that. And she does have recordings of when he was recording when she was alive. She still is alive. But, um, and all she could remember is uh, she didn't want to listen. She didn't want to hear it because she hates country music and she still does. And she will go on about that. Um, but it was a healing process, I think, from being an observer, I don't know. I, I think, and then through her attitudes and her questions and her mm-hmm. her reevaluation of everything, I think it was also very healing. Was it healing for you too? Yeah, it was. Um, I guess I always just try to see the good in people, so I never thought, oh, well, you know, he was a good for nothing. I, I've always grown up, gee, I really wish I would have gotten to know him. Mm-hmm. Um, but that it helped me solidify like, yeah, you know what? He was a good person. And talking to all of his friends who are still around is like, Oh, they're whipping up all these stories that my mother never even knew. And, uh, it was, it was really nice to get to know him through this process. And that's one of the reasons why through my genealogy business, I want to keep looking for the good in people or figure out why were they this way? Mm-hmm. What, what got them to that point? What drove him to alcoholism? What drove him to become, you know, aiming to be a star? What was it? Mm-hmm. So I think it was a really good emotionally healing process all around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You said when he was laid up, it's when he started kind of getting the inspiration to start performing. Mm-hmm. Uh, did he learn guitar and the songs on his own just from listening to the radio or he was he did to somebody? Okay. yeah thank you for that yeah uh, he uh he did he was playing by ear he was trying to figure out the chord progressions and trying to figure it out um i think he did get a book that came with the guitar like here are the different chords um and he does have a bunch of song books and that was one of the things that i kept track of when i was researching was the songs that he had marked and said, you know, here are his playlists and, okay, what what are some similarities between these songs or if there was a theme or if um, it was just easier to play if there were simplified chords or if, you know, he was trying to go above and beyond if he was trying to do trickier things. And that's the one gene I didn't get from him was learning how to play guitar. That is the only instrument I cannot get. I can do a simple melody, but chords, forget about it. No way. <laughs> so, but yeah, he, uh, he, he learned by ear. He didn't take any formal classes, no teacher. So as far as we know, the Owens and the Carlins are not musically inclined. He was kind of the first one. But like my, my great aunt and uncle who are good friends with him said, it's like, you know, we didn't have the money to drive up to the cities. Yeah, if you want the music, you got to make the music. And that's a lot of the things I saw reading books about that time period, too. It's like, socially, you know, the music that was playing up in the Twin Cities, there was either the swing bands or if it was the classical music. And if the people in Red Wing didn't fit into either one of them, forget it. Um, Red Wing has a very famous theater called the Sheldon Theater. And they had, they were primarily vaudeville. And so he was getting that idea, too. And it worked, the vaudeville scenery and the ideas of the dramatics you know worked well with the country star or the western folk cowboy um because they're trying to paint this romanticized idea of the cowboy whipping out his guitar singing the cows to sleep um 
it, it played well together. So I think that was another way that like, you know what, this actually fits well. And that's how he was able to market to his, um, his listeners. And I actually got a poster over there for one of his, uh, his shows that he has. Um, and he, we actually were able to save a lot of the papers. Um, but he was very famous. That's one of his places he played at was the Skyline Ballroom. And then he was there with uh, Leo Dressen, one of his kind of protege at the time, uh, to kind of build that up. And he was a celebrity. He was a judge. He was a guest judge. He, I saw he had a photo with him and a bunch of girls from St. Paul. Like, so he, he, the, the broadband reached all the way out to the Twin Cities. So, like, he was known. And it was awesome. So, there you go. Skyline Ballroom, that sounds so fancy. It, it, yeah, it was. And then they tore it down. <laughs> you know, that's the sad thing about a lot of these places that he played at. It's like they're all torn down. Yeah. You know, building parking lots or, you know, something goofy like that. Um, so, you said that he wanted to create his own cowboy personality did it have a whole separate identity for him as a stage persona or was it basically your grandfather but just in a stage format oh that's a good question um i it was both um my grandpa at that point was a really nice quiet guy you know very um very miss very yeah of course we're all nice right except <laughs> oh, for yeah. hockey don't mess with us with hockey no um, yes but um, it was it was basically him just being a nice guy, having a good time up there. Um, but I guess it, it, to answer your question, he, he was a little more alive on the stage than he was off stage. And I kind of feel that way, too. It's like I'm on stage. I can be yelled out about it. And then off stage, I'm going to sit there and be quiet and observe and soak it all in. So which is something that a lot of people it takes a while for them to realize, like, that's how I am. So but I learned if you don't know what you're talking about, don't say anything. <laughs> if only more people thought right <laughs> so thanks so much for coming on uh, my favorite family heirloom eleanor well thank you so much for having me it was so much fun uh, talking about my grandpa and sharing my experience and my research with the both of you it was really neat yeah it was an excellent story and we're uh, really happy to have you on thank you some great history on the special heirloom to Eleanor's family. So Carolyn, what can you tell us about caring for textile objects and uh, pre- preserving them for future generations? Well, as with any object here, we have a goal of keeping it clean and preventing damage. And one thing to keep in mind as you store your textiles is to keep it away from the dust, which can cause the textile to become dirty, and that's not something that you want. It's, it's, and it's something you can actively prevent through some simple steps. Um, one way to do that is to store it away 
So uh, flat storage is often preferred over something like a hanger. Keep in mind that the weight of the cloth hanging can make the cloth weaker and that with antique fabric it's already had a lot of wear and tear. So depending on the age and the condition of the cloth lying it flat was pro is probably the best solution. Key for flat storage is that every fold you make in the cloth weakens the fabric. So the flatter the fabric, the better. Having a fully flat object is not practical, however, so that often museums and archives will once a year refold the cloth, and this just means that folding the cloth at a different place. So the folds are distributed over the years in the cloth and won't be so hard on a particular place in the fabric. This is often recommended for quilts as well. Of course, using acid-free and lignin-free boxes and tissue paper helps to steady and protect the fabric. I'll have an archival box and have more than one cloth in the box and separate the two with the tissue paper so they don't touch. It's often helpful if, for instance, you have a dress with puffed sleeves, you can stuff the puffed sleeves with tissue paper and that will help give structure to the fabric and keep it stronger. One tip is to not store your fabric heirlooms in airtight containers like the ones I keep all my winter clothes in during the summer. Don't use the dry clean bags or zipper plastic fa fabric bags, all of which I own myself, but I have to admit that I do store blankets and current clothes I wear on a daily basis and that, that works fine. But for those items that you want to last, probably not the best choice because plastic doesn't allow airflow and can encourage mold growth. Another important consideration is light. Fabric, as I'm sure you've seen your whole life, is susceptible to fading. Keeping fabric from the light is easily done by putting it in a box or if you use a hanger, keeping it in a closet with the light turned off. Speaking of hangers, another topic of conversation is that it's not recommended to use hangers when storing fabric because it's hard on the fabrics. But if you're gonna use it, um, I strongly discourage certain types of fabrics being hung by a hanger and that's knits, bias cut um, clothes, and beaded fabrics. These are especially susceptible to being stretched and are too fragile, so using flat storage instead is optimal. If you must use a hanger, then you can help put less stress on the fabric by wrapping the hanger. What you do is you cover the shoulder part of the hanger with polyester batting and cover the batting with unbeached muslin to create padding. You take tissue paper and stuff the garment so nothing is sinking because if fabric is going to break, it will first break on the fold lines. So eliminate the folds and help strengthen the garment. But again, if you can store your textiles flat, do so. So Eleanor had mentioned that her family had washed her grandfather's shirt at some point in time, and that it actually caused the shirt probably to shrink a little bit. Uh, what would your recommendations be, Carolyn, for, for cleaning uh, a piece of clothing that's special to your family and you want it to last for a long time? Cleaning is problematic, so first be very cautious. The older the item, the greater risk is involved in cleaning. And keep in mind, just because something is yellowing or stained doesn't mean it should be cleaned because sometimes 
cleaning won't help and it only damages the cloth. If possible, vacuum. Vacuum using a low suction vacuum cleaner with a soft brush. Always put something between the cloth and the vacuum, like a vacuum brush, and make sure it's clean and not full of dust like the one I have. If you are comfortable with only vacuuming your garment to clean it, that's ideal. I know that will make some clean freaks uncomfortable, but cleaning an antique garment can be really hard on it, so less is more. If you really feel you need to clean your garment, then there are a few things that can be done, but please be cautious. Again, avoid wet cleaning as much as possible, as it can be hard on the fabric. It is recommended that you test the fabric's color fastness, that is, if the dye will discolor or bleed. To do that, put a few drops of cleaning solution, I will tell you the recipe in a second, and put a white fabric or paper underneath to see if it runs. If it does not, then you can proceed. Mix a solution of one ounce of non-ionic detergent and one gallon of distilled water. The water should be comfortable to the touch, not too hot, not too cold. The detergent should be scent and color free. Put the fabric on a screen for stability. Ideally, it would be a fiberglass screen, but a flat cloth dryer used for sweaters would work too. Lower the textile on the screen slowly into the water, set it in there for about 30 minutes to an hour, and let the fabric be. Do not scrub or mess with the fabric. After it set, sets for a while, rinse the water out until there's no detergent left in the fabric, and let the fabric dry, supported on a dry screen or surface. Again, antique fabric is delicate. There's no guarantee that the fabric will even be strong enough for wet cleaning, so clean the fabric with caution, only if you must. I would highly avoid dry cleaning. Dry cleaning uses chemicals that is very harsh on the fabric. If you feel like you must dry clean, there is a brochure on the issues of dry cleaning and how to find the right dry cleaner put out by the National Park Service that I highly recommend reading if that's what you choose. I'll put it on our blog. So to sum up then, for textile objects like clothing and sweaters and other articles of clothing, we want to probably store it flat, keep it in a dark area away from light, keep it away from dust, don't clean it, but if you feel like you really have to clean it, definitely don't machine wash it and use some sort of uh, solution that's going to be uh, gentle on the fabric and not necessarily make the the dye run. Right. And whatever you do, don't manhandle it. But I'm a man. <laughs> <laughs> do I manhandle it keep, if I touch keep it? Keep your mitts off it. All right. <laughs> Wash your hands, guys. That's true, too. <laughs> well, this is a, a fun episode uh, to be our second one in the series of the podcast, looking at textiles and talking to Eleanor about her grandfather and his musical background. We'll be back again for another episode of My Favorite Family Heirloom Podcast. We hope you liked this episode. Check us out at Twitter, Facebook. Drop us a line at our website, memorykeepersguide.com. And our podcast is on iTunes, so remember to subscribe to the podcast and uh, give a rating if you enjoy what you've been listening to. Until next time, I'm Jeff. And I'm Carolyn. This has been My Favorite Family Heirloom Podcast.